God's leading. Um, I didn't think I was qualified for this job when I applied for it, but it just so happened that um, I managed to get this job. And now I work as a church relationships manager for uh, Open Doors, and I get to travel and speak on the persecuted church every weekend. Yeah. It's amazing. Fantastic. And Zeke actually comes, um, you, you were with City Life before, right? That's correct. Pastoring yeah, there. Pastor. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. Him and Roger have just been like, yes, it's going to be all worship, <laughs> uh, worship today. So um, I think you're in for a treat. Hey, I wanted to zoom in a bit, if I could, um, into the specific project that we've got. Because as you know, FGA uh, has been growing. And thanks to the generosity, actually, of so many of you, uh, we've actually been able to increase our amount of giving that uh, we're able to do to other organizations. As you know, we tithe 10% of our tithes and offerings out away from FGA, out to missions organizations and out into the world, right? Um, And so uh, this year is the first year we've been able to sort of expand the organizations we can work with. And we've gone through a whole range of them. And top on the list for us to add into our suite was Open Doors, right? And I'm excited about Open Doors. You're going to hear a lot about Open Doors a bit later. Uh, But this is the first time we're introducing it. And they focus in specifically on the persecuted church. And our project with them in particular is called Hope for the Middle East. Uh, So if you could tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, well, um, as I'm sure many of you are aware, within the Middle East, um, Islamic extremist ideology actually sort of covers a lot of that region of the world. And and so we definitely um, see a massive need in the persecuted church to support regions. A little bit higher, sorry, my bad. To support regions uh, in the Middle East and to raise funds and support not just people who um, have been affected by war, but people who actually choose to remain and stay in their um, towns, in their regions, in their cities amidst war. These are church leaders, people who want to serve God, people who want to follow what God's trying to do, but they are continuing to serve the body of Christ, even in the midst of war. So this project actually is a great opportunity to support church leaders, um, church volunteers, people, families who choose to stay in their region to give them training, to give them practical support, to give them medication, all these sorts of things that they are not um, given access to. So Open Doors are there on the ground supporting and helping people amongst all of these regions. Yeah. Oh, man, that is that is really good. Hey, uh, so um, specifically, we're trying to raise $10,000. And I think we could actually smash that out today because we're something, where are we roughly sitting at right now? Well, as of my last count throughout this month, we're sitting at about just below $4,000, which is an amazing effort already. Yeah, um, and we haven't even done Open Door Sunday yet. I know, this is today. Yes, so, <laughs> so I'm thinking if we like just push a little bit harder, we can get... Um, cross the line. And even if we don't make it by today, you know, we're just going to keep chipping at it uh, till we can. So I want to ask you a few detailed questions if I could, because they were the questions that we asked as we evaluated Open Doors. Uh, You know, uh, we don't like charities that um, sort of uh, are inefficient with the sending of money over through to the target area, right? Yeah. That was one of the big things that our community was looking at. Yeah. We wanted to make sure that whenever, uh, given that I'm an accountant, we've got probably 50% accountants. No, <laughs> it's, it's less than that in, in our church, right? Like, um, what, how much of what we give 
goes into like overheads versus how much goes to the actual hope for yeah. the Middle East people over there. Yeah, so um, we, we, we're very open always with how we structure and how we give our funds that come in. And um, I'd love to be able to give you lots of information. We have our impact reports out there, which actually give a whole detailed range about the percentages of everything. But our administrative costs is 8% at the moment, which is really good, and we're really proud of that. Yeah, um, that's pretty yeah. good. So the industry standard's around 15, right? Yeah. And yeah. so at 8, it's pretty good. Uh, that's right, I forgot to say, you get, they, they've got a count out. They've got Neil, who's up the back over there, wave Neil, uh, who's here. The two of them will be outside, happy to answer your questions um, about the project um, and, and to talk a little bit more in detail. Okay, so next question. Um, so, compassion's tax deductible. Yes. You guys are not. Yeah. Why? There's a couple of reasons. Um, well, first of all, we work with the persecuted church, and as a lot of people would know, is that. Often uh, certain charities actually need to say exactly where every single dollar goes. But as you, I'm sure, you could understand, with the persecuted church, that actually puts Christians more at risk than what they already are. So the last thing we actually want to do is expose people who are living in persecuted nations. But also another reason um, is that if we were to reach that tax-deductible status, it would actually significantly impact the amount of funds that we could send to the persecuted church. And that's, a risk, and that's something that we're actually not wanting to do. We don't want to lower our impact or send less money just because we're trying to reach this status. So um, just for your awareness this morning as yeah. you give. Absolutely. That's actually really uh, important because I think what it does is it it's a very conscious decision on your organization's part, which is why I'm thrilled, actually. Your CEO is fantastic. You guys are doing a great job. But you've made a strategic decision to go, we'll forego tax deductibility so that we can get our resources to the people who most need it without sort of putting them yeah. uh, at risk, yeah, that's it. Which, is, which is fantastic. Hey, I don't want to take up too much more time. I'm really keen to uh, have the church hear what you're going to say about both Open Doors as well as the persecuted church, as well as you share from God's Word. So you've got a big job ahead of you. Uh, we're going to throw to a video, though, uh, from your boss. He called me up and said, hey. <laughs> no, he didn't. Uh, we, every week we've been doing these one-minute videos um, from Mike Gore um, just to help us reframe our thinking around... Uh, global missions around, hey, what's it like us as, you know, Eastern Suburban Aussie Melbourne Church versus what's it really like um, out there? So let's hear that and then uh, we're going to go to Zeke and I'll pray for him after this video. What most people don't realise is the word passion. It finds its origin in the Latin word for suffering, which means passion, it's less about how excited you can get and more accurately, your willingness to suffer for something you love. Think about it when you compare the Western church to the Eastern church. In the West, we throw the word passion around left, right and centre, earmarked by exuberance in worship, charisma in preaching, and accentuating all the good things Jesus brings into your life. Whereas in the East, their passion, it's earmarked by suffering, a willingness to follow Jesus no matter the cost. When faith becomes free, the value of Jesus drops. 
Of one thing I'm convinced, it is impossible to say you're passionate about God and not expect to suffer for Him. In many ways, it makes the passion of Christ all make sense. Jesus' death on the cross, it wasn't to do with excitement. It was to do with a willingness to suffer for something or someone he loved. All right, let's pray for Zeke. Father, we thank you so much for Zeke and uh, his life and his call to ministry. I pray that as he speaks to us, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would empower him, help us to be fertile soil for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. Wow. Thank you so much. Can we give just Chris a clap? We just want to... You know, part of my job is I get to speak to pastors and leaders across Victoria and even other states around Australia. And um, the one thing that is a common thread, I know we spoke about it a bit in, in, in other areas of the world, but one of the things that's a common thread is that church pastors and leaders have been leading through probably some of the most challenging times in modern history in the last two years. And so it's um, the way that the church is continuing to run is because of pastors like Chris. And so I actually just wanted to, I, I know we already just clapped him, but can we just honour Chris this morning and thank you for his service of the church and the whole team. It's awesome. You're amazing, Chris. We love you. We love you. I'm going to keep saying that, but <laughs> I'm so excited to be here this morning and I, I want to really just thank you already for the donations and gifts that people have given towards the Hope for the Middle East project. And I really want to, instead of today coming and um, I guess giving you an infomercial on Open Doors and what we do and how we do it, I actually want to take you on a journey of how Open Doors has actually changed my life. Because the stories of the persecuted church, when I heard them, they're unlike any other stories that I've heard of faith. You see, I grew up in church for a long time. My parents worked in the church I grew, ever since I was born. I, I, th I was born on the Saturday night and then on Sunday morning, mum and dad got out of the hospital and took me straight to church. So that's how, that's, and that's actually true. If you look up 17th of May, 1997, it was a Saturday night, Sunday morning, I was there under the chair in the carrier, right? Yeah, that's it. That's it. So when I say I've grown up in church, I've been there my whole life, right? And... I must say, though, it was only up until maybe the last couple of years that I've heard about the persecuted church and actually heard stories of the persecuted church. And can I tell you this morning, maybe if I say words like persecution or maybe you hear the word suffering and ultimately in your heart there's this closing. There's like this, oh, I don't want to talk about that this morning. It's a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little bit, oh, I'm not really sure what to feel about that. And maybe you come in thinking we're talking about persecution and we're talking about suffering. This is going to be a really sad morning. This is going to be a really depressing morning. Can I say the persecuted church is actually not a place of fear or not a place of despair or not a place of this, this depressing overcoming. It's actually a place of hope. It's a place of love. And it's actually a place of amazing growth. And revival is happening in amongst the persecuted church as we speak right now. And so the persecuted church is actually one of the most hope-filled, faith-filled, love-filled churches in the whole world. And I think if we could just grab just a little bit of what they have, it wouldn't only just change FGA Melbourne here, it wouldn't just change Victoria, it actually changed our whole nation. 
And so this morning, I want to bring a word to you that's an encouragement. Now, so just quickly before I get in, you maybe have never heard of Open Doors. Open Doors is a ministry that's been operating for over 70 years. We were started by a man named Brother Andrew. And he wrote a book named God Smuggler. Now, some of the older generations here maybe have read the book God Smuggler. And if you're a young adult or a young person or the kids, I am so thankful that kids are in here this morning. Can we give our kids a clap? Awesome. If you haven't read the book God Smuggler, I want to encourage you to read that book. It's the story of coming to faith and how essentially our ministry was birthed. And it was birth of one man sort of wanting to strengthen what remains. He, he put Bibles in amongst his VW Volkswagen Beetle and he delivered them across the Eastern Europe border and delivered Bibles to those who didn't have access to them. And that was the starting point of our ministry. But if you want to maybe put in a sentence what our ministry is about, is we want to help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. No matter the cost, whatever that cost may be. Now, that is including the persecuted church. That's one arm, of, one arm of our ministry. But the other arm is we actually want to help you follow Jesus no matter the cost. Because we believe that the persecuted church are some of the greatest mentors for our faith today. You see, we can open our Bible and we can read scriptures about people who suffer for their faith. The people like Apostle Paul, all the disciples, Jesus himself suffered. But we can often, often like read those stories and go, well, that was back then. That's not now. Right, But can I tell you, there is people suffering for their faith today. Do you know that one in seven Christians around the world are persecuted for their faith? That accounts for 360 million Christians around the world. And that number's not getting any lower. In fact, it's rising. And persecution is rising in intensity and in frequency. And there's many different factors that, uh, that, that come to persecution and what that looks like. But the ultimate thread is this, is that wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution will always exist. And so we are here to help you follow Jesus this morning. And if you're taking notes or if you're a note taker, um, the title of my sermon this morning is Faith Statements to Walk Through the Fire. And we are, um, this, the sermon I'm bringing this morning is from Daniel 3. And many of us would know this story. I was going to read it in its entirety, but it's actually quite a long scripture. And I've heard that there's food happening after the service. So I wouldn't mind having some food. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But it's faith statements to walk through the fire. And it's a story of three young men named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You may know this story. I'm sure most of us would have heard this story. Just for some background, I'm going to tell you this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived in a time where there was a king who ruled supreme over them. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar was known, and scholars would suggest that he was one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. And what he would do is he'd go around and he'd conquer a, a region or a nation or a part of the world. And what he would do is he would take all these people, all these people, and he would gather up the young men. And he would give them, he would take them into his kingdom. He'd bring them back to Babylon and he would give them a new name. He'd give them a new education. He'd give them a new life. And he would, essentially, he was persecuting people and he was trying to bring people into his way of life. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were three of these people. A fun fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not actually their real names. This was the name that King Nebuchadnezzar had given to them because they were now under his rule. And a part of his rule is what he would do is he would set up different gods that all people under his kingdom were to worship. 
And so in Daniel 3, we see these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar raises up this golden image, this statue. And what would happen is that whenever music was to be played, like this morning, people all around would have to bow down and worship this idol. King Nebuchadnezzar would force this upon his people. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not going to do that. Because we believe in the God that we're worshipping this morning, the God that we are coming to worship this morning. We believe in the same God that they did. And they said, we believe that our God is the only true God. So we're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship this idol because we believe our God is the one and the only true God. And King Nebuchadnezzar heard of this and he brought them in and he said this. He said, you have to worship, otherwise I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. Essentially, you'll be killed if you do not turn from your faith and follow and worship this God. And you see this key, key passage of the scripture in Daniel 3, verse 17 to 18. You see these three men say in faith, and it's such an amazing statement. It is, our God is able, he will, and even if he doesn't. Our God is able, he will, and even if he doesn't. You know, that statement right there is the heart of the persecuted church. Not only do we believe our God is able, we believe he will save us. We believe he will do what he said he would do. But even if he doesn't do that, I'm still going to worship him. What an amazing statement. Maybe could I challenge you this morning? Maybe in our culture we say this, our God is able. We believe our God is able. We believe he can do the things that he says he does. And then we say this, he might. He could. And then oftentimes what happens is after we say he might or he could, and then if he doesn't, oftentimes we turn from our faith. You see, our faith is so based on outcomes that we forget it's actually meant to be based on that word, faith. So we create cultures and systems and it's not our doing. It's not our fault. It's not because we've done anything particularly to go off road. But what happens is the culture around us, suddenly we begin to doubt the God that we believe in. And so instead of saying he is able, he will. And even if he doesn't, we say he is able, he might. And if he doesn't, I'm going to be mad at him. And so today I want to take us on a journey. How do we come to be able to say that statement? He is able, he will, and even if he doesn't. And I believe there's three steps to walk through the fire that we can learn, that we can see in the persecuted church. Now, I have the privilege of seeing stories from the persecuted church all day, every day. We have access to them. We can read them. We can see them. And maybe today you're going, oh, I can't give money, but I really want to know more. Come up and chat to us because we'd love to sign up for our prayer news and you can hear stories that encourage you and push you deeper into discipleship of your faith. But I want to take you on three steps to walk through the fire. And these are things that we see in the persecuted church. These are things that constantly come up. And I, I pray that they will change your mind on what it means to suffer and what it means to come under persecution. And the first step is this. Persecution is a part of the process. Persecution is a part of the process. You see, in John 15, verse 18 to 20, Jesus says these words. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. 
The world would love you as its own. If you, oh, sorry, if you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. And if they persecute me, they will also persecute you. You see, Jesus is saying that every believer, people who people persecuted Jesus. So if they persecuted Jesus, you will also be persecuted. And Paul goes even further in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. He says, you know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know about how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, but the Lord has rescued me from all of it. And then he says this in verse 12. Yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a might. It's not a could. It's not a 20% chance. His language is definite. And this is a challenging thought for us because we don't like that. And often what I would say, we actually probably don't experience that much persecution. Maybe we experience this really low end, you know, like mockery or being left out of certain groups. But we, we really are on this lower end of the scale. And I love this quote. It says, the real tragedy of persecution is not that it happens to believers, but that it very often doesn't. You know, I remember my first week working at Open Doors, being overcome by these amazing stories of the persecuted church. And our CEO came to me and he said, look, maybe, maybe our world and maybe our culture is not experiencing persecution because the world can't see Jesus in our life. Maybe we're not experiencing persecution because the world can't see Jesus in our churches. Maybe we've become so accustomed to the culture that we forget that we're actually becoming like it and then there, therefore Jesus is no longer evident in our lives. And so that's why at Open Doors, this might confuse you, but we actually don't exist to end persecution because we see persecution as the result of successful Christianity. And the reality is that wherever the gospel is shared, persecution will always exist. And, and persecuted believers agree with us. They will tell us, if, if we want persecution to end, we can make it end like that in an instant. It's a one-step plan. If you want persecution in your life to end for your faith, the simple thing to do is stop following Jesus. All you need to do is stop talking about Him. All you need to do is stop worshipping. All you need to do is stop following Him and the persecution will end. But they don't stand to do that. They want to follow Jesus and they want to reach. So we have to understand that persecution is a part of the process. That's our first step. Our second step to walking through the fire is this. Proximity is Jesus' position. Proximity is Jesus' position. You know, I heard this story from some members of our team who traveled to Iraq. And they flew in and they could tell as they were flying in, as they look out, you know, you look out the plane window, you can see where you're flying in. They could tell where they were flying in was a war zone. They could see like billows of smoke rising from the ground where recent attacks have happened. They could see military aircrafts lining the runway. And not too far out from the airports, they could see like what looked like these tent cities, like highly dense populated areas of tents where people who'd been displaced by ISIS were living. 
And so our team were telling us that over the coming days, their plan was to go through these various tent cities and, and talk with people and hear their stories and encourage people and, and work with them and give them support. Like it was awesome that we were doing, right? So we're going through these tent cities and our team remembered this one man that they met. Middle-aged man, he had a wife and he had five children who'd been displaced. And we asked him, tell us about your life before you were displaced. And he said, look, I, was a, I, was a, I owned two veterinary clinics. I had multiple houses. I had undeveloped land. In his own words, he says, I was a multimillionaire. I had money, right? And um, he was talking about at one of his veterinary clinics, one time he um, employed a Muslim man to come in and to work for him, right? He's like, this is going to be my way of evangelizing to the Muslim community. And over time, not only was this man just the co-worker, they became friends, they, had, they knew each other's families, and eventually this man would become a business partner of his. And so this man, this Muslim man that he brought in, they were great friends for 10 years. 10 years they were friends. Talking about faith, off, you, would, you would imagine over dinner tables they'd talk about, you know, uh, the Muslim faith and they talk about the Christian faith and they go back and forth and ideas and he remembers this one conversation one day where he was just really confused and this friend of his he'd been friends for 10 years and he said to him one day everything you own is going to be mine what he was really confused he didn't understand he's but you know as I'm sure all of us would have gone, oh that's a weird comment but being friends with him for a long time just just blow it off don't worry about it wasn't before long that ISIS actually entered his town. And um, he reflected that in an instant. Within one second when he found out, he, he realised that he'd lost everything. His houses, his, his businesses, his land, he lost everything, right? He needed to flee. So him, his wife, his five children packed up, grabbed everything that they could and they needed to get out as quick as possible, right? So they're displaced and now they're going and they're finding a place to sleep and the very first night, this man who'd lost everything, this family who'd lost everything that he'd worked for for many, many, many years. He's putting his children to bed, not in their own beds, not in their own home, displaced, no home, no place to live. And he remembers his phone ringing. It's his business partner. His friend answers the phone. Hello? His friend First thing he said to him is, under the law of ISIS, I take everything that you own. In fact, I'm sitting in your bedroom right now. Maybe a little bit naive, he responded, well, that's okay. When this is all over, I'll come back and, and you can give it back to me then. And the man, his friend, so-called friend, said to him, don't you ever come back. And if you ever come back, I'll just take it from you all over again. Crazy. This person who'd been his friend for 10 years had taken everything that he owned and now him and his family live on the run, displaced, no home. You know, he, um, we asked him about his current situation. What's it like living where he is right now? And I'm going to be a little bit um, physical if that's okay, but he speaks about how he now, I might just move this quickly. Balance the bottle on the bottom there at the same time. But he speaks about how now, when he goes to sleep, because he lives in these tent cities, right, 
He lives in these places where there's rats that would eat your skin because they're just looking for food, right? So him and his wife need to take turns every night lying down and holding his children above his head as they sleep. So this man now, from having multiple houses, multiple businesses, undeveloped land, now sleeps with his hands above his head, holding his children above him. He's lost everything. And he talks about how he, him and his wife need to take shifts at night about who holds which child and when they get hold. These, this is a family that barely any sleep, that barely sleep anymore. And it was crazy what he said next. It's crazy what he said. He said um, this statement, and, and I'm just sort of quoting for him. He said that, um, you know, before ISIS came, I had houses, I had land, I had money. I was happy, but I had no love. No love. He said that people always ask him, where was God when you were displaced? And he said, but people ask me that question, but I actually experience the hand of God in my life all the time. And this is what he said. ISIS was a gift because I now know the love of God more than ever. ISIS was a gift because I now know the love of God more than ever. And this is what he said. Imagine our team living from Australia, coming into Iraq. He said, the problem with Christians in the West is that you're more in love with your life than you are with Jesus. And that makes you unwilling to die for him. ISIS was a gift because I now know the love of God more than ever. And the problem with Christians in the West is that you're more in love with your life than you are with Jesus. And that makes you unwilling to die from him. You see, the the, the, the thing that this guy got out of all of his suffering was not that God was far. In fact, it was that God was near. God was near. And you see, in our suffering, in our persecution, what you need to understand is that proximity is Jesus's position. I love the verse Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and the staff, they comfort me. You'll prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, right? We gain comfort from this scripture. And as I look at this man's story and I look at my life and when I've taken comfort from that scripture, I don't know why. Because ultimately when I read that scripture, I think I'm looking for a way out. How do I get out of my suffering as quick as possible? We almost create systems and cultures and, and ways that how can I get out? But can I tell you that verse has no steps to get out of the valley. It doesn't tell you how to get out of there. It doesn't tell you which way to go. It doesn't tell you anything about how you are going to get out. What it says in that is that wherever you are, if you are in the valley, I will be there. Not only will I be there, my rod and the staff, they will comfort and protect you. Not only will I comfort and protect you, I will actually prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. So we create cultures that try and get out of suffering and we almost make it look like that when we are in suffering, it's because God is not with us. 
Could I say it is the complete opposite? And also, we can sometimes forget that God, Jesus himself, walked into suffering for you and I. People say that Jesus was murdered. People took Jesus' life. No, they didn't. He gave his life. Jesus walked into suffering for you and I. And so we live our lives chasing the mountain, chasing success, chasing houses, chasing all the businesses, chasing undeveloped land. When Jesus is saying, I'm in the valley. Proximity is Jesus's position. We need to remember that wherever we go. I'm not saying that blessing is bad. I'm not saying it is. But sometimes we get so mixed up and we think that blessing is success when oftentimes blessing is in the suffering, if we just look for it. So first step is persecution is a part of the process. Second step is proximity is Jesus's position. And our third step is pride clouds our perspective. And if the keys and the, and the piano player want to come up, you can. I'm almost finished. But pride clouds our perspective. I want to go back to Daniel 3 for a second. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Tell you what, we love that story in the West. We love it. Because our reflection from that story is that if we're ever in the fire, God will save us, he will be with us and he will take us out. That's our reflection. It's a good reflection. It's a good interpretation of the scripture. And I would encourage you that if you ever find yourself in a period of suffering and struggling, you need to believe God to take you out. Maybe there's people here this morning that are experiencing or need healing or, or, need, or need provision or whatever it may be, right? I am believing with you. But can I say that in this story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we can turn it into God's way of giving Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego a miracle. So we go, when things go wrong in our life, we can get in this mindset, well, now it's God's time to bless me. Now God's going to bless me. Now God's going to move in my life because I'm experiencing suffering. We can almost take it as a signpost. But can I say the story of Daniel 3 is not that God is trying to reach and persuade Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The point of the story is actually God is trying to persuade the persecutor. God is trying to reach King Nebuchadnezzar. You know, God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar all of his victories. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to try and kill three of his disciples and followers. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar everything that had happened in his life. It all happened under God. But all in an attempt that in the end, God would say, Nebuchadnezzar, You do not have power over life and death, only I do. People ask me, why do the persecuted church follow Jesus no matter the cost? And can I tell you? People in Iraq follow Jesus no matter the cost because they truly see a day where ISIS is overcome by the good news of Jesus. It's true. Do you know why they follow Jesus in parts of Africa is because they truly see a day where Boko Haram is overcome by the good news and the gospel of Jesus. Do you want to know why they follow why people continue to follow people and Jesus in Afghanistan because they see a day where the Taliban is overcome by the good news of Jesus. 
Do you know why persecuted Christians follow Jesus all around the world, no matter the cost? Because they see a day where governments and systems and and countries and whole nations from top to bottom would be overcome by the good news of Jesus. Do you want to know why we follow Jesus no matter the cost? Because we truly see a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, we need to believe in a world that no one is too far away from Jesus. No longer we can say there's enemies and there's not enemies. Everyone is in need of a Saviour. And sometimes we can make our faith so complicated that we forget there is a world crying out for a Saviour. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And you know, today I want to give you an opportunity to partner with the work that we get to do in the Middle East. And you would have seen as you come in that there's a little card on your, on your, uh, on your seat there. And it has a QR code and there'll be also be a slide that's coming up behind me that has a QR code. Now, I want to give you just a couple of minutes. This may be the only time it's spoken from the platform, but I give you permission to pull your phones out and use your phones in church. I'm not going to think you're texting or disengaging from what I'm saying, okay? You can pull out your phones. You can scan the QR code on the, on your, on the one here on the seat drop. But if you don't have a seat drop, there's this QR code that you can scan on the screens. And you know, some people say, well, what's the essence of our ministry here at Open Doors? And, and we're a gospel advancing ministry. We want to see Jesus spread to all corners of the earth. More, in, more specifically, we actually want to see Jesus We want to see Jesus spread in some of the darkest places in the world where it's the hardest to follow Jesus. You know, your your, your giving today will actually focus on supporting families. And I've said a little bit about it, but supporting families who choose to remain in their country despite war, despite their homes being destroyed. And there is immediate need for people to, 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 to come together and to support these people and Christian leaders and Christian families and, and people who serve the church. You know, we're at just under 4,000. Our goal today is 10,000 and we're going to keep going until we reach that. But I truly believe today that what you do today above everything else is, says what it, in the title, you're providing hope. You're bringing hope to people in some of the darkest places in the world. Because you know, when they receive that support, when they receive that training, when they receive those resources and and equipment and whatever it may be, right? They know that there's someone on the other side of the world thinking of them. You know the crazy thing? I know you guys had Compassion Sunday and this is our Reignite Missions Month, right? I love it. We had Compassion last week and I... I'm a supporter of compassion. I've got multiple children. And sometimes people say, well, can we, get, can we get a profile of a believer? Can we get a profile? There's, obvious, uh, there's obviously security reasons why we can't do that. We don't want to expose. But can I tell you this? This, is, this even changes 
my perspective on it. There's people following Jesus. There's people risking their lives, people risking their families, risking their well-being, and their name might not ever be known. You might not ever know their name. But can I tell you, they are spreading the good news of Jesus. They are standing in some of the darkest places, shining the light, shining the gospel of Jesus. And they are standing and they are sharing and they are seeing amazing works of God. And so all I would like to ask you is if you'd partner with that this morning. Just as I finish, I actually just want to just come into a time of worship. So can we just stand for it? Can we just stand? And maybe you just want to close your eyes for a second and just say, God, change my heart again. Maybe if you want to put your hands out and just, maybe you're believing for God for something. And tell you what, I'm believing with you today. Can I tell you, I pray that your statement that whatever you are standing in, wherever you are, whatever you're doing is this, is that our God is able, our God will. And even if He doesn't. You know, I said another song to the team. Can we do How Great Is Our God? Yeah, are we in the right key for How Great Is Our God? Just lift your hands to heaven. Can we sing You're the Name Above All Names? Name above.